Hey there, and welcome to the Unlikely Artist Podcast, where I'll teach you how to gain the freedom you need to become who you want, instead of who you've been telling yourself you need to be. I'm Heather Kerr. I went from international tax to art and coaching because those are the things I've been yearning to do. Listen in to find out how you can start doing what you love to in slow, easy steps each week. Let's dive in now. Welcome back, Savvy Souls. And now for a different episode, I'm sharing with you today an interview I did with B. Jeffrey Madoff, who is the author of Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas. This is a great book, which I'd highly recommend, and I'm going to put the link to it in the show notes. We had a fantastic conversation drawing on his wealth of experience and expertise in all things creative. Not only is he the author of that book, but he is the founder of Madoff Productions based in New York City, where he's considered to be a great storyteller and incisive interviewer and has worked with the likes of Ralph Lauren, Victoria's Secret, Radio City Music Hall, and the Harvard School for Public Health. He was also a recognized fashion designer at just 22 years old when he was chosen as one of the top 10 designers in the U.S., before he switched his career into film and video production. He's an adjunct professor at Parsons School for Design, where he has taught and continues to teach a course he developed called Creativity, Making a Living with Your Ideas. Every week in that course, he interviews a guest, a well-known guest from a variety of fields, from artists and entrepreneurs to venture capitalists and business leaders. And it's interviews of those people that were the basis for his book. He's also a featured speaker at a variety of places like Wharton School, Princeton, and Yale. And most recently, he's written and produced a play based on Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Lloyd Price. Its world premiere took place at People's Light Theater in March 2022 and is opening in Chicago under the name Personality in June of 2023. So he's got a lot of experience to draw on. He's got a great attitude, a joyful disposition. And I think you're really, really going to enjoy this interview where we talk about creativity and failure and how you value yourself and all kinds of things you will be interested in hearing, Savvy Souls. So hello, Jeff. Welcome to the Unlikely Artist Podcast. Thanks for coming to talk to us today. Well, thank you, Heather. Thank you for having me on. Okay. So on this podcast, we talk about our lives and careers as a journey, making that journey intentional. And I think of our lives and careers as creative acts. We have so much more that's available to us than we think, which is what inspired me to have you as a guest on our show you're a master of creativity and your careers covered everything from fashion design, film and video production for names like Ralph Lauren and Victoria's Secret. You're a professor at Parsons School for Design where you teach about making a living with your creativity. And you interview lots of very interesting creative greats in your class. You've put out a fantastic book called Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas, which 
I've read and would highly recommend to uh, all of you listeners here today. And I'm going to put a note for where you can get that in the show notes. And Jeff, you've also written and produced a play about the rock and roll famer Lloyd Price. And you're a featured speaker at places like Princeton and Yale. And I think you mentioned you're doing a course soon at Yale. So there's about a thousand questions I could ask that would benefit my audience, but I've narrowed it down. You'll be happy to know. So you're not here for a full day or several weeks. (laughs) Well, again, thanks for giving me a chance to talk to your audience and hopefully I'll say some things to them that are useful. Absolutely. I have absolute confidence you will. So Jeff, your book, Creative Careers, has a broader audience than the name might suggest to some people, where I think you and I are like-minded in our embracing of a larger definition of creativity. I'd like to know what your definition of creativity is. My definition of creativity is the compelling need to bring about a change. And that can be in anything. The traditional definition you're talking about often refers to writers, painters, musicians, uh, people that are in, let's call it more traditional creative fields. And a lot of people in business don't think they're creative. And a lot of entrepreneurs don't think they're creative. And I think that entrepreneurship is in fact a creative act because it starts with an idea. And in order for that idea to have any meaning at all, that you've got to actualize it into a business. And so when you were taking something from your thoughts and you were bringing that to an audience of some sort, that's a creative act. I agree with that. Um, I even, I would even say I have a broader uh, concept of creativity in the sense that, well, you couldn't say it more broadly than I do, which is your life is a creative act. So even sometimes like salaried careers, and that kind of thing can also be deeply creative as well. Have have you, like, do any of your guests ever deal with that, with the salaried employee as well? Yes. You know, how you live your life and the intention with which you live it makes a big difference, right? In terms of just, uh, we've got a siren here that, so if you can hear that. Yeah, by the way, everybody, he's in New York. So what would you expect otherwise? (laughs) Exactly right. That's the New York Symphony in the background. That's (laughs) That's correct. You designed Uh, that, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Uh, So I think that creativity has a lot to do with intention. And, you know, there's oftentimes a dichotomy that someone will say, well, I'm not creative, but. Exactly. uh, And a lot of people shortchange themselves. And I think that shortchanging comes from a few different sources, possibly. When you're a kid, maybe your parents shut you down or cause you to shut down because nobody wants criticism. Nobody wants to be berated or belittled in any way. So when you get, well, that's stupid or why are you doing that? Could be from parents, could be from teachers, could be from your peers when you're a young kid. And I think that these things conspire to cause most people to shut down and not express themselves. And in fact, you can express yourself in so many different ways. You can be uh, someone who is basically 
creates a living space for your family exactly. and that you want to create the most fertile kind of living space for them. And you can make that all intentionally a very creative act. So you have a garden, you have herbs that you grow in your garden that you have for dinner. Your kids are learning about that. Uh, there's so many opportunities to be creative that if your mind is open, things that might seem rather banal, in fact, can manifest as a very creative act. And that creative act can reach out and affect others too. Yeah. So I gather from what you're saying, um, reading between the lines, do you believe that everyone is creative? No, I believe that everyone has the potential to be creative. Uh, unfortunately, the most creative thing a lot of people do mm -hmm. is make excuses for why they don't do anything. <laughs> and uh, so I think that, unfortunately, there's a lot of people whose spirit is snuffed out when they're rather young. Sometimes when they get older or even middle age, they think about what they wish they would have done, but they always censured themselves. Uh, they were always reluctant to put themselves out there, to put their ideas out there because they felt ashamed. They felt they might be criticized, rejected, all of those kinds of things. And that's really hard to deal with. Uh, so I think that when I say that being creative is intentional, mm -hmm. it means that you're putting your ideas out there and you're taking that risk that it might not be accepted. Right. So here's my perspective on that. I totally agree with everything what you're saying. I just want to add, I guess, from my own experience, I was one of those people that you talk about where my creativity was shut down when I was 11. I was super sensitive and a teacher criticized some artwork I did. And that had been so important to me. I remember going home and crying every night for a month and just like shutting down. And it didn't surface again until I was in my 50s. And then no. it was really, I had a massive shift. I, I was an international tax lawyer, which isn't creative in ways you don't want to be. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, being creative in the way that you do want to be doing good in the world and creating things of beauty and all that kind of stuff that happened for me in my fifties. And what I found for myself is I think I was born creative. I shut it down for exactly the reasons that you said. And then something happened. I allowed myself to open up to it. And once I started opening up to it, then I was flooded with it. And then it was all the hard part about being willing to put myself out, out there and making courageous decisions and all of that. I don't know if that's something that is really rare or something that you see very often. I, I think it's something that happens to lots of people as they get on in life and they're not particularly fulfilled in what it is they're doing, or they have those things they always wanted to do, but were afraid to do, and they're confronting those fears that they have, uh, I think that the insight that you had gets into a really, what I think is a really interesting area, because your experience <clears throat> when you were 11, I mean, it's amazing that you've got that specificity for what happened, uh, because I suspect <clears throat> that teacher was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Yes. Because that one episode isn't gonna shut you down. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> a weakening that takes 
place over time where unfortunately the learned behavior comes to you as, you know, when I say this stuff, I get made fun of. Uh, nobody seems to understand what I'm doing. And you become more and more reluctant to share those things that you do, because again, you're protecting yourself from that criticism exactly. uh, and from that rejection. And where that leads me is, uh, and I think this is way more common than people think. Uh, I think it's probably fair to say that the impact of that event on your life was trauma. Yes, definitely. And, and what we try to do is deny our trauma or sometimes, as in your case, you're always kind of walking around the perimeter of it because it's still kind of scary. And then you hit that point where you want to deal with that trauma because the only way to get past it is to acknowledge it and deal with it. That's right. And so I think that, that your experience is not unusual. Uh, that doesn't make it any less painful. Doesn't make it any less profound or traumatic for you. But I think a lot of people go through that. Exactly. And, you know, it was really funny because I used to tell myself, like, literally, I had a voice in my head that would just say, oh, you're not creative. You can't do that. You're not artistic. You can't do that. But it was kind of creeping out of me. Like, I figured out how to landscape our garden. I did the interior design in our house. I took beautiful travel photos. I painted a jungle in the kid, you know, in our basement for the kids, like it would still kind of creep out, but I kept telling myself I wasn't creative. Well, and you did it in safe spaces. Yeah. You know, and, and I think, you know, I, I learned this as a director in working with talent where you might think that these people that are, are famous uh, well-established, wealthy, all of that wouldn't have those issues of fear, but we all do. And they're all processed in different ways. And in order to get the best from people, and when I say the best from people, it means their creative expression and contribution, for instance, in the play that I'm doing or in the classroom that I'm teaching, is to create a safe space so that you can express and you aren't afraid of the response you're gonna get. You feel safe enough to express. And, and that's really important. And, and how, do you, uh, how do you go about, um, what are your techniques for creating a safe space for your students and others? First of all, listening, because people need to be heard and most people feel they're not. And so truly being present and listening and responding uh, is huge because you're, you're trying to find voice for that expression. And if you hit another wall, it's not gonna make you wanna express. So, you know, when you, when you hear about whether it's an actor who they say phoned it in, in terms of their performance, mm -hmm. they're keeping a distance from it because they either don't think what they're doing is worthwhile or they don't feel safe enough to express. And so they go with what they know and keep it very much defined in a narrow corridor. And I think that, you know, I don't 
I don't have techniques, so to speak, as much as a way of being. That mm -hmm. way of being is listening and having a sense of empathy, which means if you understand the fear or the hurt that that other person is dealing with and they get that sense from you. So instead of being harsh or come on, get over it or that sort yeah. of thing, but rather they feel that you understand, which makes them feel safe. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that, that that's what's most important, which is, you know, everything is about relationships. And yeah. so think about what in a relationship makes you feel safe or makes the relationship fulfilling. And I think being heard is a huge part of that. Yeah. And I guess if you're heard, it makes you more willing to express yourself, right? Right. Because you're validated. You know, if, if you're sitting there in a corporate boardroom or a corporate meeting and there's 25 people around the table, you don't want to open your mouth because you think, well, here's an opportunity to get criticized in front of 24 of my colleagues. And that's why there's so much mediocrity out there is because people are afraid to speak up and contribute ideas. And uh, as a result, oftentimes leadership confuses silence with agreement. Oh, so often. Yeah, I used to be in the corporate world. I was a tax lawyer and that just happens all the time. Yeah. And so these all become learned behaviors and, and you know, and they become reflex at a certain point because, you know, those fears start quite young, just like oftentimes having the confidence to express happen when you're quite young. So, you know, and the stronger that desire and drive is, the harder it is to squash it. You become rebellious right. and, you know, uh, and you express your ideas. And if that means a confrontation, there are some that it's, too frightening, they won't do that. And there are others that will stand up for themselves and stand up for their ideas. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. I'm, I'm kind of wondering about you. Like when I look at your biography, it looks like you kind of came out of the womb writing plays or whatever, right? Like, have, did you ever, um, did your parents encourage you in your creativity or did you go through any any restrictions and unleashings of your creativity? Just curious about you. I was really fortunate in that my parents, although they didn't always understand what I was doing, always encouraged it. And so they had retail stores in Akron, Ohio, which is where I grew up. When they saw that I enjoyed drawing, they would bring home craft paper from the store, you know, that you wrap packages in. Mm -hmm. And so I had these big sheets of paper that I could sit on the floor and draw, you wow. know, and do that. And they didn't care if I taped it to the wall. They felt my room was my room. So, you know, that was my, the place where I could do what I wanted to do. Uh, I was reading some books that were rather precocious for a kid to read. Uh, for example, I was very influenced by Lenny Bruce, the comedian. Yeah. And, uh, he, his autobiography was called How to Talk Dirty and Influence People. Okay. And, you know, a spin on the Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yep. 
And uh, so my mom, when I was, I think, 10 or so, uh, got me an adult library card. Wow. Lenny Bruce's book came out when I was 11 or 12. And, uh, and first of all, it's important to understand that my parents let me read Lenny Bruce because my parents were never afraid of ideas. And again, I don't even think it was conscious. It's just the way they were. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I went to the library to take out the book. And the librarian said, you can't take that out. I said, why? Because that's in the adult section. And I said, I have an adult library card. And she saw it. And she said, well, I'm going to have to call your mother. (laughs) And she called my mom and librarian said, your son uh, wants to take a book out and that's why I'm calling you. And then she said, we don't need to call me. He can take out whatever he wants. Said, well, this is a questionable book. And my mother said, it's not questionable. She didn't even care what book it was. She said, as long as he's reading, that's a good thing. He's exposing himself to ideas. So he has my permission. You never need to call me again. (laughs) Well, that's pretty supportive, you know, and that's great. So I was always open to ideas, always open to discussion, always prepared to defend my position. Uh, And, you know, it wasn't like because this adult in the library said you can't take that out. I wasn't going to take that for an answer uh, because I knew it was okay with my parents. So I was really fortunate that my parents encouraged that. And, And I suspect my mom, who as the legend goes, <laughs> I don't know if it's fully true. Uh, my mom was apparently very, very talented as a uh, ballet dancer when she was young. Okay. And there was a, her teacher uh, saw you know, a huge difference in my mom's talent than others. And so she wanted my mom to... Uh, go to this school in New York. To be a ballet dancer to my grandmother was, you know, in the same space as being a prostitute. You know, <laughs> how, how, are you, how are you gonna make a living as a dancer? You know, my mom was quite young at that point. Right. Looking back, I should be, you know, doing this interview on a couch, Heather. Uh, you know, <laughs> hey, uh, I'm a life coach, what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Looking back in my mom's dresser, uh, at the bottom drawer, she had her tutu and toe shoes. Uh, from I guess you know she I think she gave up dance when she was like fourteen, something like that. She always kept those. Wow. She always loved paintings of ballet dancers. She always loved dance, and. That was, I think, her expression and fulfillment that she was never allowed to fully realize. And I think, you know, my dad, my dad went to work, both of my parents, uh, you know, they grew up during the Depression. So they both went to work quite young. My mom wasn't born in this country. She was born in Czechoslovakia and came here when she was, you know, I think four uh, but, you know, it was a whole different world at that point. And uh, they may not have had, they didn't have, my, my parents' generation didn't have the vocabulary 
to talk about some of these kinds of things that we're addressing. But there were those like I was fortunate enough in my parents that that fostered expression and would talk to me about it, you know, and not in any analytical way. They'd look at the drawings I did. And I also I wrote constantly. I wrote story, short stories and things like that and wrote comic books uh, that would get passed around the school. And they were always, you know, it was never, well, make sure your homework's done. You know, there was never anything like that. Everything I did was taken seriously. I did get very good grades in the school. So that's another big leverage point, <laughs> you know, is yeah. that when you do what, when you accomplish the tasks you're supposed to accomplish, uh, that's, that's another opening for you. But some people feel that's an end in itself. And to me, finishing my schoolwork, because I knew I had homework to turn in, that to me was always kind of the starting gate because then the time was mine. And right. as long as, as I finished that, that was cool. Yeah. So they were really, really supportive of you going beyond the schoolwork. Whereas in my family, my parents were teachers and, it, you know, the focus was getting the A pluses and that was what you needed to do. And I would say, my dad in particular, who is the biggest influence in my family, um, definitely thought that art wasn't useful. <laughs> yeah. So just a different perspective. So uh, tell me then a, a little bit about, so you've got this background and this encouragement of your flourishing as a creative being in the world. Um, how did that lead you to, I don't know if I've got this right, but I think you were top 10 in the US as a young men's clothing designer but by the time you're 22 do I have that right or correct me I was chosen one of the top 10 young fashion designers in the United States so it was uh it was women's clothing and okay. uh, and uh now let's put this in the proper context I think there were eight of us so it wasn't hard to be in the top 10. You know, that wasn't, that wasn't a time when young people were starting businesses. There wasn't even the term, you know, startup as something you did to your car or your lawnmower. It wasn't something you did to your, in your career. Uh, so that phrase didn't even exist back then. So yes, I was, I was uh, considered one of the top. I won an award and there was a big fashion show at the Plaza Hotel. And so that was fun. And you were, uh, and you were 22. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. So how do you, how do you become like well-known in a creative field, in a tough creative field like that by the time you're 22? You know, oftentimes it's luck. Uh, you know, this of course is uh, long before social media. So in order to get something going and getting traction, you know, it's, it was a whole different world then. Uh, one of the things that happened with me is uh, there was this uh, major buyer for, uh, I've, I've, I think, AMC stores, Associated Merchandising Corporation, I think it was. And they owned a bunch of major department stores around the country. Their uh, buyer in my category was an outrageous personality. And uh, he, I get a phone call. My factory 
for my clothing was in, I'm sure you've heard of it, Footville, Wisconsin. Uh, uh, I, when I started my company and I was growing, growing very, very quickly and I was, had, you know, wasn't, I went to uh, college in, at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. When I started my company and I was growing so quickly and I wanted to manufacture my own stuff and control the manufacturing of it, and that's before everything went offshore, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, had a, I had a factory in Footville. Uh, and <laughs> before I took over this factory, they were making dresses for CREEP, which is an acronym for the Committee to Re-elect the President, which at that time was Richard Nixon. Wow. So, yeah. So when the uh, <laughs> when the woman who was she was bizarre, uh, who owned the factory. She I said, now, what did you make here? And she said, well, we made dresses for President Nixon. I said, oh, gosh, I didn't know he wore dresses. She <laughs> goes, no, no, he didn't wear dresses. But and I'm thinking I know he didn't wear dresses. That was J. Edgar Hoover. He's the one that wore the dress. But anyhow. <laughs> Uh, so anyhow, uh, but I digress. <laughs> I get a phone call from this guy, uh, whose name was Bernie Ozer. And he says to me, uh, is this Jeff Madoff? And I said, yes, it is. And he goes, well, I have to tell you something. So, okay. And he goes, I'm walking around in San Francisco. You know, those hills up and down and up and down. It's exhausting walking around in San Francisco. You know how steep those hills are in San Francisco? They're incredibly steep. And I'm walking and I see this guy wearing a shirt. Well, everybody was wearing a shirt, but I saw one in particular that got my attention. And I walked up the hill and followed him. Now I'm perspiring. I'm out of breath. I don't tell you that I was exhausted, but I caught up to him and I said, whose shirt is that? He said, it's my shirt. He said, no, no, I know it's your shirt, but I mean, who designed that shirt? And let me look. And he walks behind the guy, peels back the collar, and he sees the label Billy Whiskers, which was the name of my company. And he said, I never heard of Billy Whiskers. Who's Billy Whiskers? I don't know. So I went back and I told my assistant, find out where Billy Whiskers is based. Find out who owns that company. Find out who's designing for that. <laughs> well, How's that for detective work? I found you. And here I am on the phone with you. And I want to meet with you next time you come into New York. Wow. So uh, he was a wild character, very influential in the fashion world in the category I was in, which was the beginnings of what was called the contemporary market. I'm one of the people that coined that term. Well, not the only one, but we, I'd seemed to surface in the zeitgeist at the same time. Uh, because it was either the junior market or, you know, Missy in, in women's clothing. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and men's, it was either, you know, kids or adult clothes. And they said, who do you design for? And I said, uh, the contemporary market. Who's that? They said, my contemporaries. I don't want to dress like I'm in high school and I don't want to dress like I'm selling insurance. You know, so I want to do design things that I liked. And that was the birth, not just me, but that was the birth of the contemporary market. Well, because I had a very uh, vocal and influential person who clicked on my clothes and what I was doing, that led to me getting write-ups in Women's Wear Daily, which was at the, at the time the Bible of the women's fashion industry. Mm -hmm. 
And then as you get exposure, it gets you other exposure. You know, so my stuff was in Playboy, Glamour, uh, Mademoiselle, all these different publications because I started getting attention and they're all looking for stories. And so the fact that I was also a designer getting this attention, but based in Footville, Wisconsin, it was a total anomaly. And so I was, you know, kind of a novelty. And when I won that designer award, I was in front of tons of fashion press. And it's, it's funny, Heather, because I haven't thought about this stuff, honestly, in terms of the genesis and origin story of my fashion designing. I haven't thought about this for years, year, decades. So, you know, the, the way it happens is, you know, the serendipity that somebody happens to spark to what you're doing, that somebody is uh, influential and has influence in a particular market, which then gets you attention, gets you some press coverage and stuff starts happening. So right. that's how so, my name got known. But it's interesting. I, I, I can see that you have great humility and you're pretty self-deprecating, but like there's an intentionality in it from like you, you're the one that had to come up with the ideas, um, design the clothes, actually start your company and, and, and make it happen all at a very young age. And it sounds like it's because of your upbringing and your ability to believe in yourself and your ideas and not set limits because like, I love your library story, your library story yeah. saying, well, yeah, nobody can have this rule saying that this is an adult book. And so I don't get to read it. I just get to do what interests me and follow those threads. But you, you know, there was a lot of intentionality on your part. If you hadn't created all that stuff, the guy that found you through calling out this other guy and looking at the designer of his shirt, right? None mm -hmm. of that would have happened if that guy wasn't wearing your shirt, right? That is correct. Right. That is, uh, the, but, you know, uh, I'm not modest, uh, but you know, hopefully I'm not full of shit either. And uh, is that something I shouldn't say on your show? No, that's uh, totally fine. <laughs> Uh, you know, because the, the thing is stuff happens and it depends mm -hmm. on, you know, how you deal with it. The way that Bernie started that phone call with me, uh, a lot of people would have hung up earlier because they thought, who's this nut calling mm -hmm. me? Nuts can be interesting, you know, and it happened. I had no idea who he was. And when he told me his name, he said, have you heard of me? And I said, I'm, not, I'm sorry, I haven't. Well, I've heard of you, you know, since he's chased <laughs> the guy down. And, uh, you know, I, I think, I don't know, it was, it was very, it was a very funny interlude that, you know, led to other things, among many other things. But I think that it's, it is part of it is that I felt like I always felt hurt at home. You know, my sister has a, great store in Charleston, South Carolina, my sister Janice, and uh, it's a high-end women's fashion store. And she was very involved in the retailing at my parents' store. I wasn't that into retailing, but because I had some retail experience, I got a job in a retail store when I was in college so I could make some money while I was in school. And it's just the serendipity and opportunity that present themselves. And the thing is that 
I'm seduced by ideas. And so as, as things present themselves, or as I interpret those things as possibilities, that's what attracts me. I never thought of, oh, I could get rich if I did this. Oh, I could make a ton of money if I did that. That was never sufficient motivation to do anything. That was, that's not entirely true. That was sufficient motivation to mow lawns in the summertime and shovel driveways in the winter in Ohio. But that wasn't uh, enough motivation for a career because I knew I'd be doing that year round. So, uh, you know, I think that I've, I've always been able to figure out a way to make a living doing what I am engaged with and like doing. And I think that fulfillment and engagement from what you do is, for me is, a, is primary. And I'll figure out a way to somehow make money doing it, but I'm not an empire builder. I'm trying to live my life and with my family and friends and enjoy it and be engaged in it as much as I can. And, you know, I think if you, I think if you do that, and I think if you pursue those things and the quality of life, you can, you can make a career out of your creative dreams. You have to be realistic and you have to understand it's a lot of work and it requires a ton of perseverance and the ability to adapt because you're going to inevitably face obstacles that sometimes seem insurmountable, but somehow you can keep going if you're not only committed to the idea and you have the persistence to keep pursuing it, but you have that real internal compass that keeps you going in that direction because that's what engages and fulfills you. Yeah. Speaking of keeping going, what are your thoughts about failure? Like how, like how much is failure or the potential, uh, the possibility of failing part of the creative career experience? Failure happens. The real question is how do you define failure? So, you know, first day of class, I would say to students, how many of you are afraid of failing? And 75% of them raise their hands. And I say, okay, so of you guys that, uh, are afraid of failing, how many of you inhibit what you do to try to make sure that you won't fail? And probably 80% of that group raised their hand. And I said, all right, well, it's the first day of class, so it's not too late to drop it. Because I will tell you that, uh, if you are afraid of failing and that's your definition, you're never gonna do anything interesting because creativity is hand in glove with how you're defining failure. Because things, most things don't work or you have to try it again and again and again and again in order to get it on track and make it work. So I think that you need to understand that creativity risk is inherent in that action. You don't know if it's gonna be accepted and you still put it out there. So for me, my definition of creativity, I mean, I'm sorry, my definition of failure is 
giving up on something that's important. Because if something is important to me, uh, the only failure is that ultimate failure of giving up on what's important, compromising my values, compromising my vision. That's failure. Hitting the obstacles, hitting stop points, having to somehow figure a way around it, getting knocked backwards, which I almost never get knocked backwards. I'd rather fall forward. But, uh, you know, that's not failure. So tell me a little bit about what you mean by falling forward. What I mean by falling forward is if you can somehow learn something from what got you to that position, what knocked you down, can you learn something? Can you iterate on that to figure out a way to navigate around that obstacle? Uh, You know, that's the falling forward that you keep moving forward in what your goals are. You know, I, when I was starting with my uh, play, and it was also true with my book, uh, even true with my designing when I did clothing, not everybody bought it. Now, you know, I kept at it till I got customers. Uh, with my book, there were publishers that turned it down. And, you know, the stories are legion and legend of, mm-hmm. of writers and painters and actors who had so much trouble achieving that recognition that finally propelled their careers. So I'm thinking if, you know, you can learn from it and the stumbles that you, uh, the stumbles that you have are in fact learning experiences. And, you know, because you can learn a lot from what doesn't work. I learned more looking at crappy movies because their seams show. So when I watch when I watch a great film, I'm so seduced by the film that I don't see any of the scenes. I'm totally seduced by the story. That's what I how I want people to feel when they see my play. They're totally right. seduced by what's happening in front of them. They aren't looking at the scenes. But when you see something not very good, then you can start breaking it down into components. Why didn't that work? Well, that wasn't even believable. People don't behave like that. And all these things that can take you out of a film. Right. You know, and uh, so I think, you know, we do hear often, especially from, you know, coaches and others, uh, failure's great. It's a learning experience. Failure's not great. It hurts. It's not fun. Uh, but if you can come away with it, with the value of having learned something that can keep you moving forward, then you deal with it and realize that that's just part of the process. I do think though, that when you think of it as, as learning rather than failing, it is really helpful. For me, that was a huge difference when I became an artist and entrepreneur, because when I was a lawyer, I was a international tax lawyer. So I was advising banks and people like that. I couldn't make a mistake. Mm-hmm. Because if I made a mistake, we could get sued for like a billion dollars, right? Like, right, um, right. so mistakes were, so we had a whole system of second and third partner reviews, right? To make sure that we didn't make a mistake. So I first came to the entrepreneurial world kind of thinking, I, you know, I, I have to, you know, succeed at everything. I have to do everything perfectly. And of course, I quickly found out that it just doesn't work that way. So I had to completely change my mindset about failure. And now I kind of embrace it. Um, 
you know, in the sense that it really sucks. It does feel terrible, but I also feel good about my attitude towards it. And it Mm -hmm. makes me feel really like strong and able to persevere. Mm -hmm. So it feels like this newfound strength. So I I do love the entrepreneurial mindset around failure. And I also found a lot of comfort just from, you can study almost anybody who's famous or very successful and look back through their career and you're going to find some missteps, some things that didn't work out immediately, some. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Some hurdles, right? Yeah. I would also say, Heather, that probably some incredibly creative people uh, exercise their talents in tax law. Yes. <laughs> where And the ability to perceive loopholes, which is overcoming yeah. obstacles, the uh, ability to work around the system legally, yeah. uh, all those kinds of things. I mean, there's, there's creativity in all of yeah. these fields. That's what I was obliquely referring to earlier, saying I exercise creativity in that field, but not the kind I wanted to. <laughs> right, exactly. That's literally what I meant, although I don't like thinking about it too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, get your let's get your parole officer on the uh, Zoom call <laughs> next time. <laughs> exactly. Um, so there's another thing I wanted to talk to you about. It's kind of related to, you know, our self-perception and failing and all the stuff that we've talked about is there is a really interesting chapter in your book about valuing yourself and pricing your work. So by that, I mean, like if you're an artist pricing your paintings or if you're um, a consultant pricing your services or, you know, like anything that you would price. Um, And I'd even say if you're an employee negotiating your salary, you're putting a price on yourself. Right. I guess my, my, my question for you is pretty big open ended question is how do you, put a value on yourself? Like, how do you talk to your students about that? Well, I mean, it's a great question because when you're starting out, you don't want to price yourself out, meaning that you're charging so much, nobody's going to hire you because you haven't proven yourself yet. And, you know, people are very careful with how they spend money, especially at that level. Uh, it's, It's really important to know what the competitive landscape is. So if you're graduating from school and you're hoping to get a job as a design assistant, uh, which is much broader than you think, because depending on the size of the company, uh, you might be working directly with the designer and learn a tremendous amount, or you might be part of a staff of 30 people working in a division of a big big design house, right? So uh, if you, are in that and you're saying that, you know, you want, you want, you know, $500,000 a year starting salary Mm -hmm. and their starting salary is 75,000, you're not going to get hired, right? So you need to know, here's the competitive landscape. Once you get in the door, and this is like what I did with my schoolwork, when I got good grades, that opened up other doors for me. And the reason, the way it opened up other doors for me is I showed I could do the work. Right. And so I didn't make excuses. Uh, my daughter hated math. She's very, very bright, uh, hated math. And so she didn't do well in math. And I said, you know, 
you love solving puzzles, you do this, that, and the other thing, you can do this. Uh, and your complaints are going to have a lot more credibility if you do something well, as opposed to it sounding like sour grapes, because you don't like doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I said, so I'll make you a wager, you know, I'll bet you, you can get a, you can get an A on your final. Wow. And I, and I know my kids well, uh, yeah. and I'll bet you that you can do this and you have to determine, do you want to win at this contest or you just want to sit and convince yourself that, you know, you don't like the teacher, you don't like all that kind of stuff. Well, she got the highest grade on that test. Well, and then she, she, then she said to me, so dad, I have nothing else to prove. I'm not taking math yet. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, but I, I think that, uh, I think that getting back to your question, knowing the competitive landscape, knowing your value. And the first thing you have to do in order to demonstrate your value is to get the job. So you price yourself in a way that you hope will get you in the door and get the job. You don't price yourself less than everybody else. You price yourself competitively with everybody else. And then the hope is that you can take advantage of that opportunity and grow in the company. If the door shut to you because you've got an inflated vision of what you are worth, you're not going to get a chance to prove that. So, you know, you got to start off the way you have to start off in that kind of business unless you start your own company. And, you know, there's arguments for starting your own company, but there's also good arguments for learning on somebody else's dime. And that's not just learning the skills, it's learning about the politics in business, which is huge. Mm -hmm. And it's about learning how to navigate in that world. And it's also, you shouldn't leave any job without adding a number of more names to your directory for contacts that can help you in other things you might be doing. So the value that you have, uh, you've got to temper it when you're starting out, but you know, there's basically, you have to be confident, not delusional in what your value is. So that once you got in that door, and once you have your first review and you can demonstrate your contribution, then you can ask for that raise and you can continue to grow in a position because you got in the door in the first place. And your opinion is going to mean a lot more when you have some history behind it. Yeah, I think there's um, something that happens when people um, overinflate their own value at the beginning. And I think what they're failing to recognize is we get paid in more than just dollars. That's right. So uh, I might be like some people, they just feel like they're not, um, they're somehow losing their self-esteem or they're not having their own back if they accept too low a price, but they're forgetting that they're paid back in other ways. Well, I think basically what you're saying is if, if you're given the opportunity to show up, you're given the opportunity to show your work, and do a good job, it will start multiplying itself and you can get up to that point, but just be patient with it. Well, that's right. And there's, you know, the, there are ways that you are paid aside from money. Exactly. Uh, you can get paid through gratitude. You can get paid through referrals. Uh, you can get paid through new connections. Uh, 
you can get paid through learning. There's all kinds of different rewards, so to speak, that can come from what you do. And if you're so single focused that you're only thinking it's what my weekly paycheck is, period, then you're also not opportunity focused. And to be opportunity focused, you realize, oh, wow, they're dealing with a lot of people that I have the potential to establish relationships with. Would you you say that's part of the reason for your, the extent of your success? You said that, um, you know, that money was relevant, but you were really focused on getting, you know, working with the ideas that you're engaged in. And you were so focused on that. I'm just thinking that maybe that's why one of the main reasons why you've ended up being so incredibly successful, because, you know, like if I'm on the other end of a transaction with you and you're really focused on delivering me fabulous ideas, like I'm, I just feel like I'm going to get really amazing stuff from you. Well, it's, it's an interest. It's a, it's another interesting question, Heather. And, and I worked with Ralph Lauren from 1983 to uh, 2018. And uh, Ralph said to me at one point, it was the greatest compliment he could give me. He said, you know, I can hire, I can afford to hire anybody I want, Mm -hmm. uh, but I want to work with you. And, you know, I, I gained tremendous experience from him. And in working with him, and I worked, uh, there are many times I worked directly with Ralph. And I got to see the growth of his company, the global expansion, going public. But Ralph constantly, uh, not only is very competitive, but he was constantly exploring new territories and new opportunities. And he also was very much focused on his expression and his ideas and had a very good compass, which was himself a really good compass for the direction he wanted to take his company. And so in that, during that association, I also learned a lot, which was fantastic. So I had the, it was a big win in landing that account because you know, because of his prominence, although he wasn't as prominent when I started with him, uh, he still got, even back then, got a tremendous amount of attention as a designer. And so that was a platform that gave me a halo effect. Mm-hmm. Because when people, it was funny, it was double-edged sword. There are certain clients that I pitched to and said, well, really like your work, but you know, we're no Ralph Lauren, which meant they couldn't afford to pay me in their mind. Mm-hmm. And they didn't realize that but that's not all I'm looking for. <laughs> you know, right. I, I'm looking for an opportunity to do the reason I worked with Ralph for so long is because I never ever took our relationship for granted. And it wasn't like it was a deep friendship. We enjoyed each other. But what mm-hmm. it was, was I delivered every time I did something for him. And he knew he didn't have to worry about me. <laughs> I yeah. was going to deliver. And so that's you kept delivering huge. value. That's right. That's right. And, and that's what I think a lot of people as they are striving, uh, lose focus of how important it is to constantly be delivering because those clients become 
your evangelists. Or if nothing else, you can promote the fact that you do that work for them. So all of that is really important. Yeah, kind of, I think, related to this or the undertone of this discussion is, is values. You talk in your book about core values and the definition of success. So like as we're talking about all these things, what how would you define the values that have carried you through your career choices and pivots and decisions? Uh, I think, I guess, you know, there, there's, there's a few things. The foundation of doing business and the foundation of living a full life is the integrity and sustainability of the relationships that you have and maintain. And that to me is true in business and that's true in my personal life. I'm really fortunate. I mean, my closest friends, I know some of them, I don't remember not knowing. Hmm. And when I say that, it's not because I've lost my memory. <laughs> uh, one of my friends and the first person to help me start in business, his mother and my mother grew up together. Hmm. we're still close friends my best friend we've been best friends since third grade uh one of the people that invested in my play was somebody we were in kindergarten together uh and i have maintained those friendships for decades uh and i think that that's a really important compass in life is the value of the relationships and the true currency in life, both in business and in personal life. And sometimes those cross over. Uh, and it's important, by the way, to know that they don't always cross over. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there are some people feels like you're friends when you're working together, but you have to realize it's a transactional basis to that relationship. You're delivering something to them that they are paying for. Mm -hmm. And I know whenever I do any job, I want it to be as much fun and engaging as possible. But I also don't confuse that with, oh yeah, we're really good friends. Yeah. We're not really good friends. We have a really good and healthy professional relationship. I deliver value. Uh, they pay for that. And my reward is they continue to hire me. And so I never assume I never assumed that I've got that business, even when I've had it that many years. I mean, Victoria's Secret, I worked with them for 26 years. So those are two of the most desirable clients you can have. Uh, but it's because I always delivered. I never took it for granted. Right. But I think that those values of the maintenance and growth of relationships is the most important, both in personal life and in business. As you talk about um, Victoria's Secret, I found a lot of the things I read and saw about online about that business really interesting. Um, you were you've worked you worked with them for how many years? No, twenty six years. Twenty six years. So, what really impressed me the the stuff that I saw was how diverse and massively creative <laughs> everything you did did was and it seems like you kept inventing new things one of the stories that really interested me was 
the story about the Victoria's Secrets models where you had the idea of doing, um, I think it was the 12 nights of Christmas mm-hmm. and they started singing off key. Yes. Can you, can you, can you tell us about that experience and what that tells us about your creative process? That was, that was, uh, that was a fun situation. Uh, the Christmas Carol, where I, I proposed to them that we do a holiday spot. And they're thinking, well, you know, uh, we have a bunch of stuff in the store. I said, no, 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 we're not going to sell anything. This is all about goodwill. Okay, we're going to be truly a holiday spot. It's a, it's a Christmas card to your customers. We're not going to be promoting a new bra or anything else. Mm-hmm. It's that. Uh, and they said, what would you do? And I said, well, uh, we'll do a Christmas carol. Uh, and it'll be Deck the Halls. That was the song. Okay. The reason we did Deck the Halls is, is twofold. Uh, one is the very name of the song defines the activity that I kind of have the models doing, right? They're okay. decorating for Christmas. Okay. And the other key thing was that song is in the public domain. So you don't have to pay rights for it. <laughs> you know, so... Uh, I also knew that the models that were not from the United States, especially, you know, Adriana or Alessandra, who's from Brazil, uh, and Miranda, who is from Australia, and Doutson, who is from Denmark, uh, they probably wouldn't know the song. So we set up the action and the models, each one of them, as they start to sing the song, screwed it up. <laughs> and they, my client said to me, took me aside and said, what are we going to do? They can't even make it through the song. What are we going to do for the commercial? I said, that is the commercial. <laughs> what? I said, that is the commercial. For years, all you've done is show these flawlessly beautiful women uh, who don't talk just, you know, they're on display. We're going to show vulnerability, sense of humor, mistakes. People are going to love it because they've never seen the models this way. And, you know, to their credit, they said, okay, because I had established trust. I've been working for them for years already. Right. It ended up going viral. Uh, At that time, this is some years ago now, but you know, it used to be amazing if you hit anywhere near a million views. And I, and this had like 18 million views. It was huge. Wow. That's not a big number now. Uh, then it was gigantic. Plus it ran on Good Morning America and Entertainment Tonight and all these things in its entirety. They couldn't have paid for that kind of publicity. So what it was, was when I realized that not only did they not know the song, they would either crack up when they made a mistake or there'd be a funny expression or whatever. So it also let the audience behind the scenes and people loved it. So that idea led to us doing other things that similarly pulled back the drape, so to speak. So you could see the person behind the curtain. And it was a, it was a lot of fun and it was very successful for the client. The models enjoyed doing it. They weren't even wearing lingerie during the spot. So it was, it was fun and it was very successful. 
So it's interesting how your values kind of bled into the advice you're giving the client to begin with. Hey, we're not going to sell a bra. We're just going to do a feel good commercial. And then your commercial was all about showing people as humans and then being willing to do that for you because they trusted you. So again, it goes back to your core value of relationships being at the root of everything, your relationship with the business people you're working with, and then the relationship with your audience, right? That's right. No, you're exactly right. And, you know, when people saw those models or when people see those models, they think that they're flawless Mm -hmm. Uh, and they all have the same insecurities everybody else has. And, you know, somebody may look at them and think, oh, you got to be kidding me. Uh, No, they're people and they're they're people and none of them that I worked with. And I've worked with many of the top models in the world. None of them think of themselves as being flawless Mm -hmm. uh and what was fun is whether we were doing the christmas carols or we did the football commercial uh we did different kinds of things that were really fun they loved it because they weren't just posing they got to do things that were outside the realm of what they normally do and that was fun for them plus i think it's super stressful to have to be perfect like, I think it would be, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. No, but I mean, I think I gave for, on that years, I gave up on that decades ago, but you know, there's pressure on models to be perfect, right? There is the, the, you know, some of that's changing. The answer yeah. is that, you know, presenting that image, which is a whole yeah. other topic. Uh, yeah. There's pressures in terms of body type and all of those kinds of things. Now, body diversity ethnic diversity, all those things have come to the forefront, which I think is a good thing. Uh, And as a result, there's lots of brands over the past few years that have been rethinking how they present, uh, you know, how they present what they do and who they are. And that's also interesting because we've gone through some major cultural changes in the past 10 years. Yeah, it's, it's a more human uh, approach to pretty much everything. And then I don't know if you're familiar with Brene Brown and vulnerability and that whole dialogue that's become big in the business world, but just being able to show up as, you know, flawed humans um, has been a really big thing, both in terms of how we present ourselves publicly and how we present ourselves at the boardroom table. Yeah, you know, it, it's... There's all these phrases like, you know, be the best version of yourself. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> you know, I'm going to show up. I'm going to show you the most flawed, screwed up version of me I possibly can. Uh, you know, I don't. I, but I also think that the pendulum of popular culture swings. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, there's so much torque built up because the pendulum hasn't swung. But that torque is building and building and building. And when it's finally released, like in the Me Too movement, Mm -hmm. uh, it swings really hard. What seems to be really fast, but it's not fast. These problems have been percolating for decades. Exactly. And finally, there's enough is enough. Uh, And there's sometimes collateral damage. It's not fair as a result of that. But that's, you know, nothing is so surgical that you can only affect the people you need to affect and it doesn't affect anybody else. So that's part of the cost for progress is that unfortunately, sometimes 
people are unjustly penalized. But for the most part, it's people that should have been penalized years and years ago for the heinous behavior that mm -hmm. they displayed and mm -hmm. the sexist behavior they displayed. So I think that, you know, when we hear about, uh, you know, show up as who you are, I can tell you that uh, there are issues I wish people would work on in therapy instead of on the job. And so there are places that it's not appropriate. Uh, you know, you are here to do a job. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't be respected, you shouldn't be valued, you shouldn't be heard, and all of those kinds of things. But there is a difference. And as I was saying, you have good relationships, but you don't mistake that with friendship. Mm -hmm. And the job is not the place necessarily to, you know, bear all your emotions, mm -hmm. uh, because that's not what you're being hired to do. And again, you should be respected and valued and heard and all of those things that I think we all agree on. But you also have to realize it's a job. Mm -hmm. You're being paid for something. And, uh, you know, anybody who I have, I have, a, <laughs> I have what I call the no asshole rule. Okay. And what that is, you know, I was talking to a uh, Sheldon Epps, who's a producer, who's the uh, director of my play, who's fantastic. And when we met, we really hit it off. And I said to him, you should know that I have what I call the no asshole rule. And he kind of laughed and said, I uh, think I know what you mean, but why don't you explain that to me? And I said, if you hire me, if you're paying me, you can be an asshole to a point but you can never be abusive. I will not tolerate abuse. Mm -hmm. If I'm paying you, you can't ever be an asshole. <laughs> oh, I like that. And he, he smiled and said, we have the same rule. And what that has done, and now we've been working together for about five years, what that has done, which is so wonderful, is we create a sense of community and safety and respect with the actors and the other members of the creative team. Uh, and as a result, people are so much more emotionally invested in the work because they feel valued and they feel heard. It all goes back to that again. Yeah, exactly. The no asshole rule is another aspect of, of focusing on relationships, right? That's right, that's right. And uh, I would never, ever tolerate abuse on my set or on the job. Uh, and that can be, you know, we're not talking about uh, just about women. We're talking about people respecting people, period, no matter what your yeah. gender is. That's not the point. The point is you treat people with respect. That means everybody. Uh, you treat people and give them value. That's true with everybody. Um, you had this great line in an interview where you said, money comes and goes and time just goes. And I'm wondering if you could share your thoughts about balancing the need to make a living and doing what you want. Well, when you say doing what you want. What doing what you want, like what you 
kind of really aspire to do what you yearn to do, what kind of feeds your soul. That's what I mean by want. I honestly don't draw a distinction. Okay. Uh, you know, I, when I was a kid, I remember, well, first of all, where that line came from is, uh, you know, my dad's next to my dad's store was the bank where he did banking for you know, the stores my mom and dad had together. And my dad was invited to the bank for, uh, it was cake and not even a lunch uh, that this vice president of the bank was retiring. And so there were a few platitudes said about him. He was given the proverbial gold watch and they made sure that they didn't run outside the perimeter of the lunch hour. <laughs> and uh, the guy left. And my dad told me this when he came home. I said, dad, what's, what's going on? Because he seemed quite pensive. And he told me what he had experienced that afternoon. And he said, and I saw him walk out the door of the bank after 37 years. Uh, doors he would probably never walk back through again. And what he had was, you know, the gold watch. Yeah. And he thought, well, you know, money comes and goes, time only goes. And that guy's time was up, the bank. And I think that, you know, for me, whether it's the teaching, doing the play, being on set, doing productions, all of those things, I love doing that. It's fun. Uh, and I think that I, I don't draw a distinction. Now, if you're talking about life work balance. No, I'm talking about exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I think to me, you know, it's, it's when you are engaged and enjoy what you're doing, it doesn't feel like work. And, you know, and nobody achieves that 100% of the time. But I've got a pretty high percentage because that's how I have tried to live my life. That's how I tried to build my company, the people that work for me in my company and all the other associations that I have. Uh, and so that's always been how I've approached it. It's never like the time where I feel like, God, I got to go through this really difficult period and then the time will be mine. It's like when I go to the dentist and get root canal. <laughs> I just had, uh, I just had dental surgery. So that's a very apt example. <laughs> right. That you want it to be over and there's a sense of relief when you're done. Yeah. Uh, I, I love being in rehearsal. I love being on set. I love doing all of those things, not always, but again, a very high percentage of the time. So it's not like, ah, oh, now I can do what I want. I've been shackled to my job. I don't feel that way. Cause I've, I've, I've been successful in setting up a, a life that allows me to engage in things that I really like doing. You know, I think that's what we all aspire to and what the people listening to this podcast are aspiring to. I think we're kind of, I could talk to you forever, but I think we're wrapping up on, I don't want to keep taking up more of your time. I'm just wondering if you've got any final words, any anything that I didn't ask you about that you are dying to share with my listeners before we sign off? I hope I'm not dying. Uh, 
it was so oh oh they can't see me falling over so never mind a visual joke uh i would say that what's important in terms of fostering your own creativity and your own sense of feeling fulfilled is of course you need to get to know who you are that's really important and a lot of people don't go into that process of discovery because it's either painful or they think it's somehow something you shouldn't do, which I think everybody should do. I think a lot of people would benefit from some solid introspection, which isn't always comfortable. And I think it's of critical importance to stay curious and to expose yourself to new things all the time. Go to plays, go to movies, read books, go to conferences, talk to people at those conferences that you normally wouldn't be talking to. Engage in life, engage in those things. There can be wonderful, wonderful satisfactions that happen as a result, but you will never know if you don't take the risk of putting yourself out there and try. Well, that's a beautiful wrap. I'd like to thank you so much for sharing so much of your wisdom and your inner reflections and your experiences and your stories. Uh, you're a wonderful guest and I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you today. Well, thank you, Heather. I've really enjoyed talking to you too. We should have recorded this. <laughs> Savvy Souls, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I enjoyed having the conversation with Jeffrey. I thought we talked about so many things that would be relevant to you. I love his definition of creativity. Creativity is the compelling need to bring about a change. That's a broad definition. And that folks is what creativity is. We talked about how people shortchange themselves by saying, I'm not creative, how we get shut down because of what happens to us. And that really can rise to the level of trauma for some of us. I guess you heard me get coached a little bit on my own creative trauma. And how even famous, well-established creative people have issues of fear, how we can give ourselves the best environment to stay safe and we can help other people be most creative by creating safe spaces where we don't get criticized and we're not afraid to express ourselves. And I might add my own take on that is even for us, when we're trying to be creative, we create a safe space for ourselves by not criticizing ourselves, right? Most people need to be heard and most people feel that they're not. So being truly present and listening is huge. We talked about how Jeff navigated his own career to become a top 10 young designer, uh, even though he lived pretty much out of the way, how he got noticed. And basically he attributed it to luck, but there was so much about him being willing to put himself out there to get great ideas and do amazing work. So he would get noticed. We talked about being seduced by ideas and how important that is to be fulfilled and engaged We've talked about failure. I loved our discussion on failure and what it really means and what failure really is, how failure really doesn't happen unless you're giving up on something 
that's important to you. That's really what failure is, Savvy Souls. I think we could have about a dozen episodes on failure and it would be useful to you. We talked about values and valuing yourself and how to price yourself, how to show up and price yourself realistically, and then just go and do good work and increase your your prices. He had a really interesting story that we didn't talk about in this uh, episode that he talks about in his book about an artist who went out and started to do large canvases that she are hyper-realistic and she paints with her fingers and she started pricing it at $5,000, which might sound like a lot, but they're six by eight hyper-realistic uh, paintings. And she now gradually worked that up over time to $100,000, a painting price. So she just went out and valued herself at something that she thought she could sell it at and then kept doing amazing work and got that price higher. We talked about the values that carried him through his career choices and all about relationships, respecting people, not being an asshole. And then ultimately, we talked about balancing the need to make a living and doing what you aspire to do and how it's so important to do some introspection and to stay curious and to expose yourself to new things all the time, to go play, go to movies, read books, go to conferences, basically go outside yourself and learn new things, engage in life and just be engaged. And that's the best thing that you can do to be creative and live creatively. Savvy souls, go out and be creative this week. Love you guys. See you next time. So if you're energized by the possibilities you're hearing about on this podcast, but you're wondering how it's possible to actually make what you've been fantasizing about doing actually happen, I'd love you to join me for a free strategy session where we'll talk about coaching together. We'll explore how you can start making what you want possible by taking small, easy steps that add up to something amazing. Just click on the link in the show notes below this episode to book your free call. I'd love to meet you live. And all my listeners, remember, it's finally your time to do what you want. <laughs>